Pastor Javen will continue with week three of our summer reading series today, where we'll see that people are meant to be loved, not used. And as we connect to Christ, we learn to better love people. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. If you will just join me for just a minute while I read some scripture to get our minds and hearts set right and we honor the word of the Lord. This is Genesis 39, 19 through 23. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about Joseph, how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. It's a miracle. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Father, we just ask that you would take this word and the words that will come this morning and seal it in our hearts to be transformed by you and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in our series this morning of summer reading, and we have been using this book uh, by a pastor by the name of Kevin Myers. He's a pastor of 12 Stone Church in Atlanta, Georgia. We've been using this book kind of as a launching point for our messages throughout this series. Basically, what he uses as almost like a parable to show us a pathway, and really what we see all throughout Scripture, a pathway is growing as disciples as Christ and is making disciples for the kingdom of God. And he, the parable that he uses is, is a journey along the base path in, in baseball. And so we started with that in the first week of where he started at home plate. And home plate, as Myers describes it, is that place where you win dependence with God. You become connected to the Father. It is that place where you discover your your purpose and, and the power of God working in you and in your life. And everything begins and ends at home plate, hopefully, <laughs> for those who play baseball. That's where you, when you start there, you want to end there too. Uh, not with a strikeout, but with running around the base path and back at home plate. Um, so it all begins and it ends with our dependence on God, our connection to him. So that's why we launched from there and we talked about what it means to abide in Christ, to remain in him, to make yourself at home in his love because everything in our life depends on our dependence on God, we said. And then the next place we go, we run the bases the right way. So we go to first base, not third base. We go to first base. First base, Myers describes this as the personal base. This is that place where you learn to win within it's that place where your character is developed. So we used that as our launching point last week. And we talked about how the, 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 the idea, the fact that before we can bring true change around us and be catalysts for change for the kingdom of God, we have to be changed within. Before God works through us, he works in us. Before there's anything that's significant that happens through our life, God has to do something significant in our life. Right? And that's why we stay dependent on God, because the more dependent we are on him, the more connected we are in him, the more we grow in him. And in fact, the more our desires change through him. And that's the key, is having our desires changed in this life. 
This week we're moving along and we're going to second base. And that is what Myers calls the people base. This is where community is valued. It's where you learn to win with others as Myers says. So we're going to launch from that idea this morning and what we look at today. Uh, I love this Phoenix peanuts comic strip, uh, that uh, has a conversation with Linus and Lucy that displays kind of Linus's idea of what we understand that relationships and people can be very difficult, right? I mean, it doesn't matter the, the type of relationship it is. It could be a work relationship. It could be a dating relationship. It could be a marital relationship, a family relationship, a neighborhood relationship. Every relationship we have in our life, every encounter we have with people in our life, there can be things that can be difficult to navigate in those relationships. Y'all act like that ain't true, right? So, I mean, that's, you know, that's true. And so I love this, this comic strip because it it gives us insight to Linus's feelings in this regard. Lucy and Linus are having a conversation about Linus's future. And you know, Lucy, she'll tell it to you straight, right? Let's look at this, this comment. They're having, you, you, a doctor, <laughs> that's a big laugh, Linus. You could never be a doctor. You know why? Lucy gives her input because you don't love mankind. That's why. I love Linus's response. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> People, they're the worst, right? Of which we are one. It, it, I mean, I think everyone in here is a person that's, that's not. That's crazy. But anyway, here's the thing that I want us to get. This the more we become dependent on God and see our lives change, the better we get at loving others. And the better we get at developing relationships in our lives. We, we've said how Myers is, is he... He went on a study through the life of Joseph, uh, and he looked at his life and the thing, the pattern of his life and what took place in his life. And really, it's a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. And I've been trying to point that out to you as we read certain Scriptures, and I'll do it again this morning, seeing this pattern at work in the teachings of Scripture. But he, he sees how all this is playing out in the life of Joseph, how the more he becomes connected on God, the more God works in his life and changes him, the better he gets at his relationships and the more significant the things he does in his life are. And we see in the Scripture that Lori read for us this morning, we see this playing out again. Pastor Caleb read the Scripture for us last week of Joseph and the interaction he had with Potiphar's wife and how Joseph was basically being seduced by her and he had to run away and he runs away doing the right thing. But then she flips the script and says that he tried to do it to her. So Potiphar gets angry. This is the passage that Lori reads this morning and throws him in prison for it. But lo and behold, while he's in prison, Joseph just begins to win the favor of all the people around him in prison. Because the more he became connected to God, the more he became dependent on God, the more God worked in his life, changed his desires and worked in him, he learned to be with others, to love others, and to develop those relationships. Because really what we see is Joseph was learning to be like God. And to be like God demonstrated that we saw through Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. When Joseph was younger, he had servants who served him. But as these things happened in Joseph's life, Joseph took the place of a servant and he learned what it, mean, what it meant to serve others, which is the heart of our father and the heart of Christ. 
See, the reason the bases, as Myers points out, goes the way they go. The reason we have to go this way in life is for a couple of things. I want to point them out because scripturally we think, well, self shouldn't come before others, should it? But I want us to understand that before we can learn to win with others, we have to go through this admission in our life that we are an imperfect people, that we ourselves are imperfect and we need to be healed emotionally and spiritually and in our life in order to work well with others. We need to give God room to heal us and to work on our soul. Years ago, I heard John Maxwell make this statement. I don't know if it originated with him, but he was the first I heard to say it. You've probably heard the statement before as well. And it was a simple four-word statement that said this, hurt people, hurt people. And that's very true. But the opposite of that is true as well. Heal people offer healing to others and bring healing to others. There's a couple of thoughts on that statement, hurt people, hurt people, I want us to consider and keep in mind. When someone hurts you, we have to remember that the reason they hurt you, it's likely because they've been hurt in their life. There's something that has shaped their perspective or something that shaped their demeanor that's causing them to be the way they are around you. Doesn't make it right, but it makes you understand that there is an opportunity for grace here. The other thing that I want us to keep in mind is that just because it is true that hurt people hurt people, when we are in Christ and we have allowed God to work in us and heal us, we understand just because hurt people hurt people, that's not my excuse to hurt others when I've been hurt. We have to remember that. Because like I said, when we allow God to work and to heal in our life, we understand that it's more helpful and hopeful that when we are in Christ, it's better to be helpful and hopeful than it is to be hurtful. That's why we show grace. The other reason that we have to let God work in us to be better at our relationships in life is because if we run the bases the wrong way, what we end up doing is we start using people rather than loving people. We start looking at people and we say, how can they help me advance my dreams, my goals, my visions, my ideas, the things I want to get done, the things I want to see happen. How can I use this person? But God has not placed relationships in your life. He has not placed connections in your life for, your t- for you to look at how you can use them. He has placed people in your life specifically for the reason for you to love them and to show him, show them the love of God and his glory through that. So I want you to go with me this morning to Philippians chapter two. We're going to look at a writing from Paul that he wrote to the church of Philippi. And we're going to read all the way from verse one to verse 18, because I want to, I want us to see again, this pattern playing out, but our main focus is verses one through 11 this morning, but let's jump in to Philippians chapter two. I love this scripture, but it's extremely difficult. All right. As people. Paul writes this and he says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? It's almost like Paul is setting them up. He's getting them to say, amen, amen, amen. Okay, then. 
make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but make an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. He gave him the name above all other names that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He goes on, he says, dear friends, you have, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear for God is working in you. Again, we're seeing it taking place. The more we connect with God, the more he works in God, the more that affects how we are around others. That makes what we do in this life significant, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be so proud that I did not run the race in vain. And that my work was not useless, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. We see these principles playing out here in Paul's teaching, but I want us to understand something about the church of Philippi. We see the church of Philippi being birthed. We, we read about it in Acts chapter 16. This was when Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. We read in Acts 16, he goes, one of the first con- converts he has is a lady by the name of Lydia. He meets her. She's a businesswoman. So she gives her life and she becomes a follower of Christ and believes in what Jesus Christ did through his cross and through the resurrection. She becomes a follower of Christ. The second conversion that takes place in Philippi to begin the birth of the church of Philippi, it happens in a jail cell. Paul and Silas had been locked up in prison. The reason they had been locked up in prison was because this woman who had been filled with a demon was coming behind them shouting all kinds of things, but she was shouting things that was making another man money. Paul turns around, casts the demon out of the woman. The businessman gets upset because now his cheating way of making money is taken from him. So he sues Paul and Silas. They get thrown in jail. That's the today's terminology is what we say. They get thrown in jail. They're in jail. While, while in jail in the night, they just begin to sing praises to God. They worship While they worship, an earthquake comes, breaks their chains loose. But instead of taking the opportunity to run in freedom, Paul and Silas stay there. The jailer wakes up, sees the doors open. He gets all nervous. Paul and Silas says, don't be afraid. We're still here. We didn't go anywhere. Paul and Silas used their physical freedom as an advantage to bring spiritual freedom to this jailer. And not just to him, but to his family. 
So the church of Philippi is birthed. And we see it begin to take shape. Then the other thing that we know about the church of Philippi is Paul writes in his second letter to the church of Corinth. He talks about their their wealth or their lack of wealth because he describes them as being in deep poverty. But even though they're in deep poverty, Paul says, they are one of the most generous people that he knows. They give. So see, they were a giving people even in the face of poverty because they longed to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advance in the world around them. So Paul writes this letter to the church of Philippi and he's actually writing now locked up in another prison because he had been professing the name of Jesus Christ. But he writes this letter to the church of Philippi. And unlike a lot of his other letters, we don't really see a rebuke to the church of Philippi here. We don't, and actually everything we kind of know about the church of Philippi is that they are a church that value knowing God. They value who God is in their life. They are a church of, a good church of people who that even in the face of poverty and persecution, they stay faithful, they stay loyal. And they do everything that they believe God has called them to do. A very grounded body of Christ. But based on what we read, we see that even in that, there is some type of conflict. We can't help but believe that there's people there that are having a problem getting along. So that tells us what we know. You know this. Wherever there is people... There is opportunity for conflict, but it's also opportunity. And this is what Paul is pointing out. It's also opportunity to reflect Christ. See, the key in this passage, Paul is saying is humility. It's being humble. Now, later in this letter that Paul writes, he tells them to to follow him as he follows Christ. And basically what he's saying is, follow my example of spiritual growth, my progress in growing in the Lord. But in this case, when he talks about humility, it's interesting to me, Paul didn't say, follow my example of humility. (laughs) He said, we need to be like Christ. We're all working towards that, Paul says to be like Christ. And let's look at at, at three of these key things that he says here. One, he says, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. This is why we have to let God work in us and within us to battle those things within us. Because by nature, we are a selfish bunch of people. Not you, I know, I know. You're not selfish. I'm not selfish either. I'm one of the most non-selfish people I know. You got that right. All right, so... Let's just take a test. When you take a picture with a group of people, who's the first person you look at in that picture? It's not just y'all. They they all do it too. You look at yourself because especially in today's age, you need to know, can you post that picture? Because if I don't look good, you can't post that picture. We're selfish by nature. We are a self-centered people. But Paul would say that's why we need to look at Christ because Christ showed us the total opposite example of being someone who is self-centered. Paul said, don't try to impress others. I know you're just trying to get his attention. You're just trying to get her attention. Paul would say, stop trying so hard. I I get it. You're, you're, You're trying to work your way up the corporate ladder. You're trying to to make 
yourself successful and, and, and get others to notice you. But Paul would say, when doing that, too often our competitiveness is rooted in a useless glory. Because what we do is we create a rivalry with others because we want to stand out. We want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want to be celebrated. And it doesn't have to just be from the sense of having fame that everybody knows your name. It could be as simple as just in your home. I wish people would take notice of me in my home. And I wasn't saying that me, literally. But that's how some of us feel. But again, Paul would say, think about Christ. Yes, when he walked this earth, people listened to his teaching, but eventually the multitude that cheered him were the ones that began to jeer him. And Jesus Christ, instead of being recognized, he was crucified. But through his crucifixion and through his resurrection, he was glorified by the heavenly father. And because of him being glorified, his glory becomes our salvation. He is the ultimate example of who we should follow. And Paul said this, he said, well, you need to think of others. You need to consider others. You need to put others ahead of yourself. One of the most difficult places for me to consider others and put others ahead of myself is at a theme park or an amusement park. Man, when you go with me, I'm on a mission. We are there to conquer, right? I'm riding stuff and we're getting, we're going, we're getting there to beat the crowds and we're getting to the lines and I'm going to, now I'm not that crazy person that runs, right? Just to save two minutes. All right. Sorry. That was a, that was a rivalry for useless glory there. Right. But, but I am, I do, I like, I'm on a mission. My mom went with us one of the first times we ever went to a place. She's never gone back with us to another place. She's like, Javen, you slow down. Dude. Um, my, my family laughed at me a few weeks ago when we went somewhere. I was just following the directions. We were, went through the parking line to pay to go into the parking garage. And all the lines merge into one line. It's like a funnel. So I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm in line to get into the single line. There's a car beside me that was having a hard time considering the other person as well. And so... We had a fight for that line, for that spot in the line of the car line. My wife was all nervous because we're in her car. They're going to hit my car. No, they're not. I'm just doing what I'm allowed to do. I won. I got that spot. But it did no good because when we got up, to the top, to our spot in the garage, the person in front of me got the last spot in this row, which was closest to the gate. I had to start a brand new line, which was way down there. So my fight, Jenny said, God taught you something today, didn't he? That's what Paul would convict us in this way. And he he would tell us, listen, the way Jesus treated you should impact how you treat others. There's a story of William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. It was in 1910 that they were having their convention at the end of the year. And Booth was 
ill. He was sick. He wasn't able to make the convention, wasn't able to make the trip. But his team wanted him to express something as the leader, as the founder of the group, to the body of those that serve the Salvation Army. So they encouraged him to write a telegram. Well, at that point in 1910, they charged by the word for telegrams to be sent. And Booth was all about making sure that everything that was done, as much as they could, their funds that they had were used to do their purpose and their vision. And that was to to reach out to the needs of others. And so Booth wrote this one word telegram and he sent it to the convention. And the leader gets up in front of the people and he says, our founder has sent us a telegram today and I want to share that with you. And I don't know exactly how it played out. If he knew what the telegram said ahead of time, I don't know. But all I know is, is, is what the way it goes is that he stood up there and he read the telegram to the body. And he says, our founder tells us this. Mr. William Booth says, others. That was it. His one word telegram to every person in that room in 1910 in regards to the Salvation Army, others. The message of William Booth was the message of Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. And it was love others. Yes, love God. But he said, you also love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, he took it to here. He said, you love your enemy as well. Pray for those who persecute you. Love others. In fact, when if we go back to the teaching that we looked at in week one, John 15, if we look at verse 10, he said, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my father's commandments, Jesus said, and I remain in his love. He says, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Verse 12, this is my commandment. This is why all that stuff is happening in you. This is why you remain connected to the Father, so that He can work in you, and you can do this love each other in the same way that I love you. And when He be, when He ended this teaching in verse seventeen, well, we can see that too. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friend. But He ended it by saying, "This is my command: love each other." It's about the other person. Jesus says but we remain in him because we have to remain in him because the more you experience God and his glory, the more you reflect it to others. Jesus, Paul says, was the glory of God on this earth. Very cool way that Jesus demonstrated this. This is so awesome. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 11. Ezekiel gives a prophecy of the, of the glory of God leaving the temple. Ezekiel prophesies that the, the glory of God was in the Holy of Holies, but for cherubim, which cherubim were a, they, they were, um, they, they represented the presence of God. They carried the throne of God. They were a visual of the significant power of God, angelic beings that signified the power of God. And he says that they lifted the presence of God up over the Holy of Holies. They carried it out through the temple. It exited the east gate of Jerusalem, and then it went up on the Mount of Olives. Now, that was Ezekiel's vision of the, of, the, of the presence and the glory of God leaving the temple because of the sin of the nation. Now, watch this. When Jesus, you fast forward to Jesus. You, you, I know he was doing this on purpose. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the first thing he did before he entered Jerusalem is he went up on the Mount of Olives. He told his disciples to get a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a colt. Now, you probably remember this story. 
because he was going to ride into Jerusalem on the colt. This fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It also signified he was entering this place in peace. He wasn't riding in on a horse declaring war. He was entering this place in peace. And he was saying that I've come to serve and to save. And I've also come to reach the others, the people that many overlook. But what's also significant is that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he, he, he entered through the east gate. And then he entered the temple. And when he entered the temple, he pulled out a cord and a whip and he drove out everything that was unclean. And he said, my house will be a house of prayer. And it will be a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, he is saying the presence of God is for all people. And you have driven out the glory of God by your sin. But I have come in to drive out the sin and bring back my glory. Jesus was the glory of God on this earth. And that's why we have to remain in him. Paul says, though he was God, being in the form of God, he did not consider that something to cling to. Our English word form can be misleading because it suggests shape, right? It suggests an outward appearance. But the Greek word here is the word morphe, which is, refers not so much to the outer appearance, but to the essential nature of something or someone. In Paul's day, when they used this word, a Roman guard or, 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 or the Roman government would use a Roman stamp that they called a morphe, which was the official, when official government document was written and put in a letter, they, an envelope, they would seal it with wax. They'd put wax on it and then they'd press down with this stamp or this ring and that symbol on that ring or that stamp would be the same symbol of the emperor of Rome. So now when that wax hardened, the same Symbol of the king, of the emperor, was on that letter, and you knew it represented him. See, Jesus was the representation of God. And we have to know, too, that Paul wrote this in Ephesians. He said that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, as we grow in God and in Christ and in his Holy Spirit, he is putting his form on us. One commentator says it this way in regards to to Morphe. He said, we must here dismiss from our minds the idea of shape. The word is used in its philosophical sense to denote that expression of being which carries in itself the distinctive nature and character of the being to whom it pertains and is thus permanently identified with that nature and character. So the Greek word form is an outward expression of a person's inmost being. We get that? It is the outward display of who you are on inside. That's why we think back to last week. That's why when Peter wrote those words to us, he challenged us. He told you that's why we're being changed from within. There's a metamorphic change that has to take place in our life. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, let's read those verses again. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and because of his excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. There's another 
Greek word that gives us, it's the more understanding that we have of a physical form, and that is the word schema. And when Paul says that Jesus came in the appearance of man, the form of man, that was the word he used there, the schema. But we also see from Paul here that there's a day coming when Jesus will return, not in the form of man, but in his full glory as God. And when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the prophecy that John gives us, the apostle John gives us in the book of Revelation, that again, one day, the cherubim will bring back the glory of God. And he will be with us in the form of man. But what Paul is saying to us is that when you understand the one who carries all true glory, the one who is worthy of everything, when you understand that that individual considered you important enough, loved you enough to give his life for you. When you understand that, then you begin to realize that this life isn't about seeking glory for myself, but it's about representing his glory to others and loving others the way that Christ loved me. Paul is again getting us to understand because this is what he did. The more we worship Christ in his glory, the more we become like Christ. The more you become more humble, the more you worship God. You become more forgiving, the more you worship God. You become more loving, the more you worship God. You become more compassionate, the more you worship God. That's why you have to always stay connected to him. If we go back to this passage in Philippians, we can almost read it in a reverse way. And if we did, Paul would be saying this to us. Uh, I think I put it in there. If we are seeking to be recognized, noticed, comparing others to, comparing ourselves to others, to see who we are better than, how we are doing more than everyone else, then maybe we are not as encouraged in Christ, comforted in his love, and centered on him as much as we should be. Paul is saying, take a look at your life. How do you treat others? Because the way you treat others says a lot about how connected you are to God. What would happen if you put others, if we put others ahead of ourselves every day of our life and in every relationship that we have? How would the relationships in your life change? At home, at work, in the community. What would happen if you forgave others quickly when they hurt you? How would taking on this form that Jesus represented, how would it how would it impact the people you work with, the people you live with, the people that you're in relationship with in in this life? Love God. Let him work in you. Let his love shine through you to others. It's what we're called to. It's what we're commanded by Jesus Christ himself. Stand with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word for this day. 
And Jesus, I just ask you now, Holy Spirit, seal this word by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. God, help us every day of our life to reflect your glory, to be forgiving as you were forgiving, to be loving, to be compassionate. And God, it is hard sometimes. But Father, when we put ourselves in you, we know that you can work in us and move in us. We ask you to do that today by the power of your Holy Spirit. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to request prayer or send us anything that you would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.